This is the seventh episode dealing with the life of Charles Haswell Campagnac, and it covers what it was like in Burma immediately after the war. In 1946, as soon as I obtained permission to return to Burma, I went to Madras by train and from there caught a steamer to Rangoon. For the first time in my life, I travelled as a deck passenger and experienced the great hardships which Indian labourers coming from India to Burma had to put up with. At Rangoon, I was met by my faithful friend and clerk, S.A.A. Amagun Pillai, to whom I shall refer as Pillai. He had worked under me as a stenotypist from the time he was in his teens. He was a most hardworking and ambitious young man. From the time he entered my service, he had the ambition to become an advocate of the High Court. He made copies of all documents drafted on me, sales deeds, partnership deeds, mortgage deeds, wills, etc., in an exercise book. I found this book of great help to me in my work. Pillai met me at the wharf and took me to one of his flats in Brooking Street, which was occupied by his first wife and two sons. In the flat below lived his second wife with her sons and daughters, and in another flat his married sister lived with her husband and children. Pillai's two wives were sisters. He'd married the elder sister for a number of years without having any children, and his father-in-law suggested to him he should marry the younger sister so that he might have children to carry on the family. By a strange coincidence, both his wives became pregnant at the same time and gave birth to sons simultaneously. From Pillai, I learned how he had fared during the Japanese occupation. Before the British evacuated Rangoon, he had gone to live at the small town of Kamayuk, which was about four miles out of Rangoon. He told me that the day after the British Army marched out of Rangoon, he came on the street dressed in English clothes and he was loudly abused by his Burmese neighbours. He said he quickly returned to his house and put on Burmese clothes. He had provided himself with a pair of racing boards and a bullet cart as he knew no petrol would be available. The next day he drove in the cart to my house on University Avenue where he met the Japanese ambassador who was occupying my brother-in-law's house in the next compound. The Japanese ambassador asked him where I was and said that he was a great friend of mine. I'd only met this gentleman once at a garden party. Pillai said he did not know where I was and that I'd had to evacuate Rangoon with my family on account of the bombing of Rangoon by the Japanese and he thought I must be hiding in the jungle. Pillai told the Japanese ambassador that he was frightened that Illumin bad hats might destroy my house and the Japanese ambassador said that he would have a notice posted on the house showing it was en enemy property and that a guard would be put around the house. The ambassador asked Pillai to form an Indian association and gave him a pass which he could show to any Japanese who might challenge him on the road. Pillai formed an association that had the good sense not to have himself appointed its president or secretary or to be a member of the committee. Armed with his pass, Pillai went to Rangoon 
and bought up a quantity of stores and cloth at pre-war prices. The shopkeepers were frightened to charge in black market prices because of the pass he had from the Japanese. With these stores, Pillai opened a shop at his house. He was also able to purchase several hundreds of acres of paddy land from the Chetia, that's the Indian merchants who lent money, who were only too anxious to dispose of them. He also collected a number of law books from the Chamber of Barristers who had evacuated. By this time, Pillai had passed his leadership examination and was able to practice in the courts. When the British reoccupied Burma, Pillai was arrested and kept as a prisoner in the Rangoon Central Jail, as his name was on a blacklist for having collaborated with the Japanese. He was interviewed in prison by an English colonel who was accompanied by his wife. The colonel asked Pillai why he had not evacuated to India. Pillai told him that he'd lived in Burma all his life and that even if he had wanted to evacuate to India, it would not have been possible for him to do so because he had two wives and several young children and his brother-in-law and brother-in-law's children, which made a total of 40 persons who were dependent on him. He told the colonel that it was the British who'd run away and left him stranded, and that he had no option but to form an Indian association when asked to do so by the Japanese. He asked the colonel to accompany him to his house, where he would show him all his dependents. There was nothing that the colonel could do except to order Pillai's release. Rangoon had been very badly bombed by the British. Whole blocks of streets in which there had formerly been dwelling houses were now vacant spaces. There were great potholes in the roads and the roadside drains and the roads had not been cleaned and the stench in the streets was unbearable. Many thousands of Burmese villages whose villages had either been destroyed during the fighting or by insurgents, had flocked into Rangoon. They built huts on the pavements in the city along the Royal Lakes. The whole country was seething with unrest. Sir Reginald Dorman Smith had returned to Burma as governor, and one of the first things he did was to bring back Usaw, who had been interned during the war in Libya. Dorman Smith had, before the war, been very friendly with Usaw, who was his Prime Minister. Dorman Smith probably thought he might be able to curb the power of Aung San by making Usaw a member of his Executive Council. Aung San, by this time, was a national hero. It was he who had led the Japanese into Rangoon, and it was he when he found out the Japanese had no intention of giving Burma her freedom had marched the Burma National Army out of Rangoon, having told the Japanese he was taking his army to fight against the British. Instead of fighting against the British, his army had made contact with Force 136, and they were soon attacking the Japanese wherever and whenever they could. After the British left Burma, Aung San had held a court-martial, as the result of which an Indian headman was executed. This incident was investigated by the police after the British reoccupation, and they reported that they had sufficient evidence to place Aung San on trial for murder. Aung San, however, contacted Lord Louis Mountbatten, 
the commander-in-chief of forces in Southeast Asia. And Mountbatten had given him a free pardon for any offences which he might have committed before and during the war. Lord Mountbatten was very anxious that law and order should be restored in Burma as soon as possible, and he knew that if any action was taken against Aung San, the whole country would have been up in arms against the British. He had no troops at his disposal to deal with a wholesale Burmese insurrection. The British troops under his command were fed up, and their one idea was to get out of the army and return to their homes as soon as possible. Groups of them used to march through the streets shouting, Repat, repat. At the end of 1946, a delegation from Burma, which included Aung San and U visited England to confer with the British government about a future constitution for Burma. On this occasion, Aung San and U were both guests at dinner at the house of Mr. and Mrs. Attlee. After the murder of Aung San, which was instigated by U it was said that Mrs. Attlee remarked that she never realised at the time that she was entertaining a man who would be the victim of a murder and his assassin. In 1947, while Aung San and six members of his cabinet were holding a meeting in the Burma Secretariat, gunmen dressed in military uniform entered the room and killed them with a stem gun. The jeep in which the gunmen drove to the Secretariat and the arms they used were traced to Usor's house and Usor was put on trial and publicly executed. One afternoon, when I was in Akyab, one of Raymond's officers, who had been on a visit to Rangoon, returned by air and told Raymond he had something very confidential to report. Raymond took him to one corner of the mission but in which he was staying, where they had a whispered conversation. Raymond asked me to come near to them and told me that the officer reported there was going to be a cute military coup and that the army was going to take over the government. The officer told Raymond that he had been ordered to ask him to take over the civil government in Akyab and to arrest all the civilian officers excepting the commissioner. I said to this officer that he could not expect Raymond to take such serious steps unless he had an order in writing from the Commander-in-Chief. The officer said that if Raymond went to see the Commissioner, the Commissioner would confirm what he had said. The officer then withdrew and I told Raymond that on no circumstances she leave his headquarters, as I feared that the officer who had made the report might take charge of the army during his absence. After about 20 minutes, Tuckin News Secretary turned up with written orders to Raymond to arrest the officer in question. Raymond walked into the officer's hut and seized his revolver, which fortunately had been placed on a table, and told the officer he was under arrest. Raymond was also ordered to arrest all the communists in his regiment. The next morning, he lined up the regiment and asked all of the communists to step forward and stack their arms. He told them that he had been ordered to arrest them and place them in the civil prison, but that he would see that they were all well looked after. The communists were then ordered to get into lorries and were taken to the prison. Raymond followed him, warned the jail superintendent that he would take very severe action against him 
if his men were there retreating. For his services in putting down the insurrection in Arakan, Raymond was awarded the Burmese Declaration of Sicily, equivalent to the British DSA. From Arakan, Raymond was posted to Rangoon. At that time, Karen insurgents had occupied Insan, a suburb of Rangoon, and had been there for about three months. They had withstood all the efforts of the army to dislodge them, and there's nothing really to prevent them from marching into Rangoon and occupying the city. When the Karen occupied Insan, they found a British lieutenant in Insane jail, who'd been sentenced to a term of imprisonment for selling arms to Yu Saw. They released this officer who continued to fight with the Karen for several months. Raymond was then commanding the 5th Burma Rifles. He had recruited most of these men from the Chortaga district, where he was liaison officer. These men knew that Raymond's Burmese relations came from the same place, and they regarded him as their own kith and kin. Raymond got these men to do what no Burmese troops had ever done before, and that was to charge the Karen with bayonets. While the Karen occupied in San, negotiations were going on between the British government and then for a truce. On the outskirts of Rangoon, there were about 500 houses belonging to the Karen, and this area was known as the Karen Quarter. One of the terms of the proposed truce was that the Karen, living in this quarter, should surrender their arms, which they did. After this, their houses were set on fire, and as the Karen reigned for safety, many of them were shut down by the Burmans. This put an end to any talk of a truce in the Karen after they had been driven out of insane, went underground. At that time, the commander-in-chief of the Burmese army was a Karen, General Smith Dunn, who had been trained in the military academy in India. The second in command was Uchor Do, also a Karen. Both these officers, although they had been perfectly loyal to the Burmese government, were placed under house arrest, and the army paragraph placed in charge of a general named Wynne, who before the war had been a sub-post master in a small post office. Nay Wynne was one of the 30 comrades who'd managed to find their way to Japan before the Japanese invasion and received their military training there. It was these 30 comrades who led the Japanese in the Burma in The three years of the Japanese occupation of Burma seemed to have entirely changed the bulk of the people. This was especially noticeable in the case of the women. Before the war, Burmese women and girls had been very modest in their attire. It was thought to be indelicate for a girl to dress in such a way as to display the shape of her bosom. Under the ayingi, which is a short coat, which was made of cotton, women used to wear a very tight bodice. Just before the war, some girls started to wear Muslim blouses, which gave great offence to Burmese monks. And these girls had their bodices torn up their bodies. In the new Burma, every girl wore a Muslim blouse, unless she was in uniform. And a number of them went to dance halls 
and indulge himself in English dancing. When the British judges of the High Court returned to Burma after the war, there was a celebration dinner at the bench and bar at which I was the chairman. At that dinner, no one realised what chaos there was for the country, and I think most of us fondly imagined that things would go on very much as before, but we were sadly disillusioned. Well, I'll finish this episode here, and in the next and final episode idea with what happened to the Anglo-Burmans in Burma after the war. Thank you for listening.